Welcome to Fresno's Best Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have Jacqueline Mancinato on the show. Jacqueline is the Director of Donation Development for the Valley Region of Donor Network West. Donor Network West is a federally designated nonprofit organ procurement and tissue recovery organization with headquarters in Northern California and Northern Nevada. Established in 1987, they serve more than 13 million people and connect a donor's gift to those in need in 45 counties in Northern California and Northern Nevada. This is a conversation all about organ donation. It's not something that we usually like to think about, uh, you know, our death, uh, but we absolutely should. So please enjoy my conversation with Jacqueline Mancinato and Baker will take us there. Fresno's best. Jacqueline, where do you like to eat in Fresno? Uh Oh, well, I have a couple favorites. So um, one of them, I have to give a shout out to Mediterranean Grill and Cafe because they're right downtown, right next to Community Regional Medical Center. Um, and so if any, if you worked in healthcare down there, you know, that's the best place to grab lunch, but they are only open for lunch. Um, and I also want to say, give a plug to uh, Anesso and Heirloom. They're kind of near where I live and I've ordered a whole lot of takeout from them over the past year. So both good. You can't go wrong. I feel ashamed. So I, I, um, I've only really been to uh, Hummus Republic downtown, which is kind of the newer Mediterranean place. And so I feel kind of like a Judas, like, because I know that Mediterranean Grill has been there for a long time. Um, it's more of a staple and, you know, I mean, yeah. Hummus Republic, I love, love the food there, but it is, you know, it is kind of, it's a franchise and it's, you know, yeah. coming from other places. Um, well, all so of what, those what do you like places. to order at Mediterranean Grill? What's your, oh, what's your go-to? Oh man, the chicken plate, the chicken plate. You can't go wrong. That's the best part. And they're so fast and friendly and you're just in and out and it's a solid lunch. So we always take people there when they're here in town um, for work and, yeah, it's it's delicious. And then you have garlic breath the rest of the day, but it's uh, worth it. Yes. <laughs> garlic breath in your mask. Yes. And I also am in that side of town near Heirloom and Anesso. And so oh. I have, you know, I mean, during COVID, it was it was uh, a godsend to just be able to order it and walk up to that little sliding window. Although, although I haven't gotten the pizza from Anesso to go. Is it good to go or is it just? It's good to go. It's good the next day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You okay. can't really go wrong. They have what, it dialed. What is your pizza to order there? Oh, what is the, oh, what's it going to, I knew you would ask me that. It's, um, I, I don't even know if I'm going to say the Italian word, right? Like the. Well, just the, describe it. What is it? It's like the cream sauce and pepper. I don't know. It's really good though. It's real. And they have a cauliflower crust, which is also Ooh. very delicious. Yeah. Yeah. That's good for those new year's diets. Um, <laughs> yeah. So we're going to make a, a really sharp, uh, hard turn here into uh, talking about uh, organ donation networks. Um, yes. And I think a lot of people, their interactions with organ donation mainly has to do with their driver's licenses, uh, but maybe they don't know much beyond that, whether they select that uh, button on their little driver's license that, you know, maybe they haven't thought about what, <laughs> what transpires. Uh, I mean, you know, when you're gone, you're gone. And what happens right. to your body, 
I know there's kind of religious aspects for some people and how they right. view the body and uh, we need to take those seriously, but you know, there's also uh, a lot of good you can do after you go. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, what work you guys do and what organ donation you focus on? Cause there's many different kinds. So maybe if you could yeah. kind of separate and delineate those for us. Absolutely. Happy to. So our organization is called Donor Network West. We, and you're probably not familiar with us unless you've been in the unfortunate circumstance of, of potentially having your loved one become a donor. Um, but we uh, facilitate organ and tissue donation in Central and Northern California and Nevada. And we are one of 57 organ procurement organizations in the nation. So we are uh, a federally designated uh, entity that facilitates that process in hospitals. So the hospitals are required to have um, a relationship with an organ procurement organization like ours. So there's a healthcare aspect to it. Um, and then there's also the public aspect of what we do, which is educating the public about the need for organ transplants, um, as well as their ability to sign up on the donor registry to ensure that their wishes are carried out if um, they would like to be a donor. So it's um, there's, there's a lot of different aspects um, to the work that we do, and, and we can't do it without our healthcare partners. We can't do it without the public being predisposed to knowing that they could save a life. What kind of organs are in need? So uh, in the nation, there's over 100,000 patients waiting for an organ transplant. Um, when I started many years ago, the waiting list was somewhere around 80,000. So it grows kind of exponentially over the years. Um, and the largest uh, need is for our kidney transplants. I think I wanna say somewhere around 90,000 of those 100,000 patients or over 100,000 patients that are waiting need a kidney transplant. So um, those folks that are on dialysis, sustaining on hours of dialysis a day, which you know limits their quality of life in many significant ways, um, they're relying on people saying yes to donation. Uh, of course, all of the other solid organs um, can be transplanted as well. Heart, lungs, liver, kidneys, pancreas, um, small bowel. So um, there's many different ways to help. And I didn't even go into tissue, which would be skin grafts, bone grafts, corneas, um, the valves of the heart. So one donor can touch up to um, 75, even up to 150 lives um, when that process moves forward. You know, it's fascinating that the kidney is the one in most demand because that's the one that we can give up and still live, <laughs> right? We can donate right. a kidney, but we have to have it kind of matched or, or something. Um, right. but, um, that's, I mean, it's just such a curious thing that the one thing that we can give is that, cause I can give my heart, you know, right. Um, I right. gave my heart on my wedding day, but you know, that's, <laughs> oh. um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Um, very nice, very nice. yeah, but, uh, what, is it just about the matching that makes it difficult to do that? Uh, that is part of it for kidney donation. And that is part of it. Um, there are um, programs at many of the transplant centers that facilitate living donation, which is what you're talking about. So um, folks waiting for a kidney transplant can have their um, loved ones or people in their community matched to them potentially. Um, that is facilitated through the transplant centers. So we work very closely with UCSF, 
Stanford, California Pacific Medical Center in the Bay Area that all have programs that facilitate that. Um, what our organization does is um, manages uh, or the organ and tissue donation process when someone's in the hospital and, and dies and then becomes a donor. So there are many different faucets of donation. There's, you know, whole body donation for science. There's blood donation. You know, there's bone marrow donation. Our entity handles um, donation after death. And, and I don't mean to make light of this, but, but part of me, like I'm fine donating my organs, but the idea of donating my body and having first year medical students mess with me after I'm dead, there's just something that, that, that I cannot <laughs> That's a no for you. Uh, you yeah. know, I, it's not I saving a life either. I'm, I'm educating some doctor. But you know what? We don't, we don't make progress in, in science without okay. it, you know? Right. So there's, right. so actually you brought up an interesting thing. We're, a, we're a part of a lot of fascinating research programs that help improve the lives of patients with diabetes and patients with cystic fibrosis. There's many different programs that we also provide um, organs to when families or individuals have authorized themselves to donate Mm -hmm. um, that really make a difference and, and do save lives in a larger context, not that direct donation person to person, but in the sense of advancing all of medical technology, which, you know, those are things that we need now more than ever. I didn't think I was going to be easily persuaded, but I was. <laughs> all of a sudden you checked. Yeah, I've changed my mind. Off. And it's just um, mostly just like, a, you know, you just don't want. You know. we, we, want we want our doctors trained well, you know. Yeah, so yeah, 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 yeah. Simple <laughs> human embarrassment. Um, so let's talk a, l- a little bit about what precipitated your organization being created. So there was um, a famous piece of legislation passed in 1984 called the National Organ Transplant Act, um, which changed the way uh, organ donation and the process of transplants was done in the country. Can you talk a little bit about um, why that was needed and what changed after it, and then how that led to the creation of the uh, organization that you work for? So, you know, I think organ donation as a whole, as a field, is a relatively newer, you know, in the last several decades has become something that is is a common is a common treatment for many chronic conditions. So at the time um, in the early 80s there there needed to be something established to manage the organ donation process. So they established what's called organ procurement organizations, which is what Donor Network West is. And we were established shortly after that. And each area of the country has its own organ procurement organization that works closely with the hospitals to ensure that this process can move forward and that organs can be made available for transplant Um, and that families will have the option to give after their loved one has has died or um, you know has uh, sustained a non-survivable injury. So the, the act, was it more kind of like a, a way to structure things? Is it a stick if you don't yes. follow the rules? Are there carrots to like help people incentivize them in right. this process? Like what, what is, what does the act actually do? Well, hospitals are heavily regulated regarding organ donation. So they're required to work closely with us. They're required to call us when there is a potential donor um, at their facility for us to come and do a consultation. So they, they really have a, that act established these entities that would manage the organ donation process as a third party. So we're like the liaison between the donor hospital and the transplant center. 
Um, and they also want to make sure that um, when registries were established, that we are there to honor patients who, you know, designated themselves to be donors. Um, and we are also established to do education to the public. So coming on here and kind of talking to you about it is one aspect of getting the word out about donation so that when families do come into the hospital in, in unimaginable grief, they have information that kind of has helped them to make a decision um, either for themselves or for their loved one. Um, let's um, talk a little bit about um, the process of organ donation. So, you know, yeah. in, every, in every process, there's always, you know, a series of stakeholders that are involved. Um, and I just want to paint for people, if we can, uh, kind of from the person uh, passing away to yeah. that transplant happening, who are the different organizations and entities that that organ has to move through? And where are the biggest challenges in this pipeline that uh, maybe prevent more organs from being donated? That's a great question. You know, I like to think that our primary duty and function as an organization when we have a call um, placed to us that there might be a potential donor at a hospital, our focus is to take care of donor families. Um, you know, we really, we are advocates for those who are on the wait list, but we really function as an organization helping families through the worst moments of their life when they have the ability to give, um, kind of to help their loved one leave a legacy or honor their loved one's wish to be a donor or intention to be a donor. Um, so I think that I think I'm most proud of our support for donor families and the feedback that we get from families months and even years later that they're so glad that they had that opportunity and that it was um, an opportunity to feel some healing and comfort in those worst moments. And I think the hospitals do the same thing. You know, um, the physicians, the nurses, social workers, they're all tasked with the same thing, taking care of a family in the worst moments of their life. Right. So, you know, we're working together to facilitate something um, when a family is in crisis. Um, and, you know, we really we come in, you know, in, in the very end of the process to offer some hope to families in the, those instances. Um, I think that, uh, you know, there's a lot of challenges. Many times um, when patients are referred to us, they're in a very serious critical condition. We're not involved in the care management of those patients um, until their death. Um, and then we facilitate donations. So that's a really important distinction. We don't have anything to do with the care that patients receive at the hospital. I think that's a myth. I wanted to make sure I mentioned on the, yeah. on the show with you today is that I, I think there's uh, some misperceptions maybe from TV or maybe from the movies, things that you hear out there in the community that if you're a donor, they don't try to save you or they won't work as hard to save you. And that couldn't be further from the truth. The hospital's one duty is to save your life when you're admitted. And only after all of those measures have been exhausted is donation introduced as an option to a family. So um, as far as obstacles or challenges, I think in the Valley, one of the really biggest challenges is that families um, are not as predisposed to donation. They haven't heard about it. They're not familiar with it. They haven't looked into it. And when they're in those challenging 
scenarios after a crisis or an unexpected death of their loved one, um, it's, it's a tough thing for them to pivot and consider donation. Our registry rate, so you know that pink dot you kind of referenced with the yeah. DMV, is uh, our rate in Fresno is at 30%. Wow. So only one in three people are registered on the donor registry who come into the hospital with a designation to be a donor if, if they could. Are um, you, and that's really uh, low. Sorry to interrupt, but are you, are you a believer? Because I know that um, there's this great book um, called Nudge uh, by this economist called Cass Sunstein. And one of the arguments he makes is that people just need nudges. Um, and something that's talked about a lot is opt-out systems as opposed to opt-in systems. Uh, do you think an opt-out system is both ethical and would increase uh, participation? You know, um, that I, that's one of the things I love uh, to debate about the donation process. There are countries that have an opt-out system and their donation success rates are not significantly higher than the U.S. You know, the U.S. healthcare system and really just in general is essentially predicated on choice, right? The choice of if people want to donate for themselves. So an opt-out system doesn't necessarily feel um, like it would have a lot of traction in the U.S., in, in, Western, in Western healthcare. I think it would be, you know, a really important thing that we do at some point um, because there should be some understanding and acceptance that we could say, you know, if you have the ability to save a life, would you? And the answer to that is most people would say, yes, we would love to save a life if we could. I think if you ask the general public that, um, there's a Gallup poll that was done in 2019 that asked that same question, which is, you know, do you, would you donate if you could? And the answer was like 90% of the people said, yeah, we would save a life if we could. Um, but that does not equate to what families say in the moment. You know, they say, they don't always say there's kind of a, a paradox there, which is unfortunate. Um, so I, I don't know. I don't think the U.S. will ever have an opt-out system. It would be interesting. Um, I think it would uh, certainly after kind of the pandemic and all of the things associated with that and vaccines, it would be you know, kind of another hurdle to jump through in terms of public opinion, you know? Yeah. So at this point, donation is based on an altruistic desire to help others. And that's kind of the beauty of it, I think. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing to think about both when, whether it's ethical or not, and like, you know, the kind of the thought process, because you're right, you know, people's decision, the abstract and decision in an emotionally charged moment are different. But let's, let's, and you mentioned briefly, it's kind of fear about, you know, them rushing your death. What are some other misconceptions that people have about organ donation beyond um, that the <laughs> Dr. Kevorkian is in the room? Right, right. Um, I, what do we hear? I hear things like, um, well, you know, if you're, you're, if you're talking to the public, they generally say, oh, you don't want my organs. I'm too old or I'm too sick or I drink too much or whatever it is. There's kind of this impression that you can't necessarily help other people unless you're in perfect health. And that is absolutely not the case. Um, it's, it's certainly, you know, lifestyle can impact your organ function, but ultimately that's not one of the determining factors um, necessarily. So that's um, something you hear sometimes or families. What about are cultural things? Are there religious things that get in the way too? 
There are some um, religious, uh, there are some families that do indicate that they have religious preferences that lend themselves to not donating. What we know from kind of the established, um, not guidelines, but kind of the established acceptance of donation in most religions is that many religions support donation and helping save another life. That kind of comes above all. Um, that's not every single one though, um, but we do encourage families to seek guidance from their spiritual you know, leaders when they're struggling with the decision. And so um, one thing we do, for example, is in November, we have uh, donor Sabbath and do a lot of outreach to the faith-based communities so that we can get the word out. Because a lot of people like kind of to your point, do, um, do seek out uh, guidance based on what their um, clergy or their, you know, religious leaders say. Um, and that has a lot to do with culture as well. And there's misconceptions around culture too. There's, um, there's no one culture that has not donated. We've seen donors come from every walk of life, every religion, every, religion, every background. Um, and even more and more, we're seeing um, groups that we hadn't seen in the past become donors. And it's been just a, a really great thing because we know the word is getting out there in some ways. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like religious groups would be the ones to tap into kind of this altruistic, you know, the value of human life. Um, and I know there's certain parts of religion, you know, whether people believe that they'll be resurrected and their body will be remade or something, or I don't know if there's many, you know, traditional Egyptians putting their organs in jars and you know, they're yeah. not running around. Um, but I, I, you know, is that something that you think about as like a strategy is to start to work closely with members of the clergy to get them to advocate on your behalf? Absolutely. We absolutely do. We've um, done, as I mentioned, some faith-based outreach to different entities. We've had different speakers come from um, different churches around California um, and, and kind of talk to different different groups, um, you know, about how to support donation. And, and two, I want to mention, there's always people waitlisted that most people encounter. So when you're talking about a faith-based community, usually there's somebody in that community that needs a transplant. So one of the things we share with families is that they're able to do um, something called directed donation and give give a specific organ to a specific person. And so sometimes I think, um, you know, uh, religious communities are, are good to, to kind of look at in terms of who can I help that I know that's in my community or that has the same, you know, um, community that I do. So that's another way that I think, um, you know, the religious leaders in our Valley can, can do outreach because there's people in their, in their groups that need that need a transplant. So let's talk a little bit now about diversity and how diversity plays a role in organ donation. And I think we need to kind of clarify what that term means exactly um, and it, why it matters that uh, a diverse community donates. Mm -hmm. um, can you kind of explain how uh, the role that diversity plays and why it's important? Well, I think it's particularly important in the Valley because we have so many, you know, we are just a diverse place. So, you know, there's a lot of different um, people waiting on the transplant list and a lot of different 
you know, a lot of different ethnicities and backgrounds of the families that we serve. So it's kind of both. Um, the organs that we, you know, organ transplant as well as tissue are not matched by race or ethnicity. So um, people of different races frequently match one another and everyone waiting for an organ transplant will have a better chance of receiving if there are large numbers of donors from their racial or ethnic background. So it, it's not directly tied in that same way, but the more people that we have on the donor registry, the more likely those who are waiting, maybe disproportionately waiting, will have um, an opportunity for transplant. So there are some compatibility things like blood type and tissue markers that are critical qualities for donor and recipient matching. Um, those are more likely to be found among members of the same ethnicity. So more diversity in the pool does help everyone. Um, and I wanted to mention this, um, you know, just based on this particular aspect that we're talking about, um, we have over 500 uh, Hispanic individuals waiting in the Central Valley for a transplant. And that's followed up by um, over 160 Caucasian and then um, 140 Asian individuals waiting for an organ transplant. And it's broken down from there as well. African-American is just over 65 people waiting. So there's a thousand people waiting in our backyard for a transplant. We don't have a transplant center here in the Valley, so it might not be as pertinent a topic um, as maybe the Bay Area, but there are certainly people waiting. I mean, most of us can identify someone who might be waiting for a transplant. I know I know several people. Um, so the diversity aspect is both that there are people waiting and the families that we're serving um, as well. You know, those are the people that we want to get outreach to because they have people waiting um, from their communities that need transplants. Do you think it's about like connecting for people who's waiting and they see maybe the person waiting looks like looks them, like them or, 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 or yeah, comes from a culture like so. them? Yeah, I think so, that, so. Absolutely. And then on the on the giving end, what are the numbers like, on who's giving organs? So, yeah, I I don't have the number in the valley um, broken down um, by ethnicity for who's. Yeah, I could get that for you, but I don't have it at the ready. Okay. Um, I know that we you know, we offer donation to all families, regardless of their ethnicity or background or how much we might anticipate their predisposition to donation. And it, it doesn't always track. So what we know, some of the things we know that work is if families are given the option, you know, in a sensitive, time sensitive, private way after they've been, um, you know, understand, you know, the diagnosis of their loved one and have really been taken care of by the healthcare team. We know some of those families' experiences lend themselves to authorized donation. Um, and we try to as well give families information about donation in the language that they're comfortable with. So we have um, several Spanish speakers on staff for um, the number of Spanish speaking families that we serve. And then we also have translators available for, for any you know, families that are speaking a language that we don't have staff that can address. So we try to meet the family where they are in terms of their, their language of comfort. That makes a big difference. 
And where, where, how does, how does, how do you think about, or where does the Valley match up to the bigger metropolitan areas of California? Is there more need here than those places or is it the same amount of need and less participation? What's, what's kind of the state? California has um, about just under a quarter of the national wait list. So there's um, somewhere around 24,000 people in California waiting for an organ transplant. So the Valley, like I said, is, is 1000 of that 24,000. Um, the wait list we talked earlier for um, about kidneys is um, eight to 10 years. If you're to be waitlisted for a kidney today, unless you were to find a living donor, we talked about that earlier, unless you were to have a living donor in your family or in your community that directed to you, the wait for a donor um, is eight to 10 years. And that's not the same everywhere. So we do have um, a disproportionate number of people waiting here um, in California, in the area that we at Donor Network West serve. And, um, you know, our authorization rates are really low in the Valley. And so that's why I appreciate being on your show to talk about this so that if it even makes one person think about it or bring it up at the dinner table with their family, you know, that's important. That's really an important thing. And it's something that we in kind of the Western Western area of the world, we don't talk about death. We don't want to think about death, but we ultimately are kind of, we should make that decision before we're in that position. You know, it it helps families to know they're doing what their loved ones wanted. And if you don't make the decision for yourself, the decision does go to your family. And so that's really a struggle for a lot of families who are already grieving to have another decision to make. And we're very lucky for the the generous families that do make that decision. And we, um, you know, we try to honor them the best we can, but it's still uh, our authorization rates are much lower um, in the Central Valley than in other areas of our, you know, that we serve. And, um, you know, we're, we're always looking to improve that and take better care of families so they might be willing to give that gift. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard for a lot of us to think about our deaths and like, you know, what, what will be done with our body and, and, mm-hmm. and, and questions like that. And, um, you know, really by and I've experienced this through um, death, the death in my family. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes when you put off making decisions about your own death, you're really, you know, just m- putting a lot of difficulty on your family after death. Yeah. If you don't make a will, right. um, then you have to go through all these kind of processes, these legal processes to get stuff to people. And it just, it just can be a challenge. And, you know, I, as morbid as is, you know, that's why it's important to make a will. That's why it's important to make these decisions now, as opposed to, you know, kind of forcing your family to do it in a, yeah. a, a very triggered time. Absolutely. So, you captured it perfectly. And I mean, I'm in the industry and I still think it's very hard to talk to your family about this topic, you know? Um, but it's, I think everyone in my family knows where I stand and it's very important to me, but I think in general, um, it's a hard topic to, to talk about with families uh, or with your family. And certainly it brings out a lot of dynamics Um, when you're in crisis on top of that, as you mentioned. So it's, it's difficult. And I, and I think the people that are in healthcare and the, and our staff that talk with families and take care of them in those worst moments, they do just such a beautiful job of navigating 
the difficulty that comes that naturally comes with it. So if it can be lessened in any way by talking with your family or taking five minutes and putting yourself on the registry, it's like, I want to encourage everyone to do that. Yeah. And it almost feels like it should be, you know, in this, in the way, like they have in public school, like sex education or something like that should be just something that like, is there's a day where the, someone yeah. comes in yeah. and just talks about it. Yeah, you watch we some do. videos or something and then we try the- to catch kids right around the time they're getting their license so that they can make that decision for themselves when they're at the DMV. I mean, it's not the most ideal time to make that decision and sort of go um, give it the, the research and consideration, but we want them to be predisposed to helping others if you can. And the DMV is such a great partner for us to to reach the most broad number of people, you know, that's really, that's really what it's about is reaching the most number of people that you possibly can. So, I mean, absolutely. It's, it's, it's a great thing. We've tried to hone in to reach high schools. We have a high school education program that our community engagement specialists do carry out. Um, I, I know I personally have done education with kids as young as elementary school and they get it. You know, they have grandparents that need a transplant or grandparents on dialysis or parents and um, it's familiar to them. And that's what we want it to be. We want it to be, this is the norm. You help another this way if you can. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about your organization? I know you just, um, you have a new president and CEO that's uh, been on uh, the helm yes. for a couple of years now. Uh, yes. What kinds of uh, what kinds of things is she doing? And her name is Janice Whaley. Yeah, right? Janice. Oh. What kind of things is she doing to push her organization forward? And what's kind of the you know what's what's it look like? what's the what's the mission for the next uh, few years? What what are you hoping to accomplish? Well, you know we have some some new. Um, Janice is amazing. I do want to say Janice is amazing. She's an inspiring leader for us. She's, you know, she's aggressive. She's, she's all about the ones we say every organ, every time, because every, every time we get a call means we can save a life on the transplant list. And she always keeps that as our central focus is saving lives. Um, that's really what our mission and vision is about. And so I appreciate that she is the driving force behind that. Um, and, you know, she came to us and then shortly after that, we launched into a pandemic. So I got to say that's, <laughs> that's a tough time to lead an organization. Um, but, you know, our, our mission moving forward is to ensure that we are partnering closely with all of our hospitals to make sure that we are called um when we're supposed to be called by the hospital so that we can offer donation to families when there's an opportunity for donation to move forward. And that's so rare, Jordan, it's less than 1% of deaths have the ability to be an organ donor. So it's not something that every single person in the hospital might be faced with. It's a very rare and unique opportunity. So Janice's goal for us is that our hospitals are working closely with us to make sure there's a partnership there that when there is that unique and special opportunity to save a life through transplant, that we have a process that's in place to make that happen and optimize that opportunity for the family um, to leave that legacy. So she's very, she's, she's really, she really pushes us um, because the wait list keeps getting longer, you know, and we can't, we can't rest or be comfortable where we've been 
We always want to improve our practices so that we're serving more families and that we're reaching more people, um, you know, before they die on the wait list. Yeah. And, and so I, this is, you know, that's a big focus for us. And you brought up something that I wish I would have uh, talked about earlier, which is, um, you know, there are so many different hospitals and privately funded hospitals. Um, is it a challenge working with different hospitals? Do different hospitals have ways of going about this that makes it challenging uh, for, for donor network groups? You know, luckily, um, hospitals are mandated to work closely with us. So there's really not, um, you know, we work together really closely and they understand um, when they're supposed to get us involved and how we work together. Um, so while we are a, a separate entity from the hospital, they are, they have a lot of regulatory standards to meet. Um, and criteria that is really important to adhere to. So that's part of what our organization does is to make sure the hospitals have a program. We have staff that support each hospital's program. Um, and I, you know, I've grown up here, lived in the Valley my whole life. I love our hospitals here. You know, they're all just amazing places to get amazing care. And, you know, we have a, a program in each, each hospital to facilitate this. And so if there are challenges in any one individual hospital, we work closely with our leadership to remove any barriers that exist. Um, you know, and I wouldn't want to get too granular, but really hospitals are about saving lives. So donation is part of their mission in the same way that it's part of our mission. Yeah. And when you're aligned in values, it's easy to work together. Exactly. exactly. So let's, um, I'm going to close with two things. First, we'll uh, we always close with some book recommendations. And then after that, we'll talk about uh, what people can do um, okay. because I'm sure there's uh, beyond uh, just donating the organs. I'm sure there's other ways that people can get involved. So sure. let's start with, Absolutely. start with books and then we'll talk about. Okay. You know. Books. Uh, I'm, <clears throat> I, this is one I recommend often. It's a little bit of an offshoot to the work that I do. It's not directly tied to donation, but um, everyone that's read this book says the same thing. It's phenomenal. It is actually based out of a story in the Valley and it's called the spirit catches you when you fall down. Have you heard of it? I have not. Oh my gosh. So it's a, it's by Ann Fadiman and it follows a Hmong family whose daughter has a, um, a life-threatening illness and how they're navigating the healthcare system. And it is the most fascinating and moving story of kind of a, a culture clash um, that's maybe not unique to the Valley, but you just come to learn so much about um, this family's belief system and their culture's belief system and, and what they went through and what the healthcare team went through trying to help them and to kind of meet in the middle between Eastern medicine and Western medicine. And it's just written beautifully. And again, it's kind of based out of the Valley. So you feel that little bit of connection. Um, and if you're interested in healthcare stories and about a beautiful little girl and kind of that saga, it's just, I've read it a bunch of times. I recommended it to my colleagues to read. It's, it's a really, really good story. Really opens your eyes. So that's my that's my plug for that one. Awesome. Well, let's um, if you, unless you have another one, uh, we can jump into how people can get. Involved. Okay. Well, on a fun note, if you okay. are interested in donation or just 
all aspects of death. There's another book called Stiff by Mary Roach. And I really love that book. And it's on my bookshelf right behind me. I love it. You know, it's Mm -hmm. a fun read. If you could say reading about death is fun, Um, but they actually profiled um, and that's not why I read it, but um, they actually profiled Donor Network West in the book. When they talk about organ donation, they kind of followed one of our coordinators from many, many years ago. And so that was kind of a fun tie-in because I was still in the field when I read it. I mean, it's been around for a couple decades, but um, just a fascinating, you know, full of, I don't know, trivia, death trivia. I don't know. Yeah. I love, I love writers like Mary Roach and, Mm -hmm. you know, there's like Bill Bryson who writes a lot of the books about different, you know, like breaking down complex things and just wrote a book called the body, which is kind of similar in some ways, um, kind of making it, making things accessible for people and, you know, yeah. uh, Things you'd never be exposed to. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I love it. All right. Well, let's finish by talking about how people can get involved because there's many ways. Yeah. Yeah. So first and foremost, um, our, our website is donornetworkwest.org. So donornetworkwest.org. You can find a link there to sign up on the donor registry. So, um, and that will link up to your DMV or your license. It won't necessarily populate on your license unless you re-up your license later, but you will be on the registry if you, um, sign up. And so that information would be accessible by our organization if the time ever came, you know, for, for donation. If I were to do that and after I passed away and my family said, no, is that something that they can do? So families cannot override someone's registry designation. There are ways to take yourself off the registry. Um, and there's some provisions to, um, you know, there's some, instructions on overriding the registry. You have to have a a disinterested witness (laughs) uh, document that you've changed your mind um, and have that witnessed by by someone as well. So there are some mechanisms for that, um, but I would encourage everyone to sign up on the registry. And if you ever do change your mind, you can take yourself off ultimately. Um, but it's good to do a little bit of research about, you know, what you might be interested in. You can call our organization um, at any point and, and ask for more information. But there's a lot of info on the website. Um, you can find us on Instagram at MyDNWest. And um, we do some cool things throughout the year. We have a run walk in September. It's been, um, you know, virtual the last two years, but a, a really fun event that's held in the Bay Area. Um, And we have a donor family gathering in April that honors the previous year's donors. That's usually here downtown um, that we honor, you know, all of the the previous year's donor families come and it's a really beautiful event. So there's a couple different things that we do here in the Valley to honor, to honor donors. Yeah. I mean, given the numbers that we talked about at the beginning, you know, I think, I think personally, you know, I think everyone should be signed up, you know, because I mean, I think, you know, there's a famous story that this philosopher Peter Singer tells about, um, about uh, walking past a pond, and there's a kid drowning, and would you jump in the pond and ruin your suit that you were wearing in order to save the child's life? And most people will take it up from a suit all the way to almost anything. Um, And really, you know, after you pass away, you're not, you're not using them. You know, right. you're not using them and, right. 
I think most of us would take the opportunity to save a life. So um, if you, if you, if you're not registered as an organ donor, I would encourage you to, to, to do that. And, and, and did you mention the, the, the process for doing that? If um, I think you did. Yeah. You just go to our website. There's a little blue box on the very front homepage that says register to be a donor. So if any of you do that, I, I would love to hear about it. Let us know at uh, mydnwest.com or mydnwest on Instagram, if you'd like. Um, and, and also more important than that, tell your family, let your family know, don't let it be a decision you make, uh, you know, at two in the morning that you forget about, let your family know you've decided to help others and find out what your family wants to have that conversation, even for five minutes, you know, we, we hear enough and talk enough about healthcare. Let's extend the conversation a little bit more, you know? Absolutely. Well, thanks for talking with me, Jacqueline. I've learned a lot. Thank you, Jordan. This was really fun. Okay. Have me back anytime. <laughs> okay, sounds great. Music show some respect to the best little city left in the US. Fresno's best. Thanks for listening, folks. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. As always, you can support this podcast by leaving us a rating and review on whatever app you use to listen to this program or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash Fresno's best. We'll see you next time.